Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Okay, so good evening. Um, is it February or March? Thank you for coming out Saturday night, very cold. Um, and also, uh, um, you may have noticed that there are cameras and all kinds of electronics in the back. And that's because uh, the evening is going to be live streamed for many people who are watching on their computers. Probably in very warm places, um, looking out at the sun. There's a thing called the sun. Maybe you've heard about it. Um, so, uh, the title of the evening uh, is called Gotta Make a Living. And my agenda is to unpack our relationship with money and to uncover some of the unconscious or chronic ideas we have about money um, and separate out the ethics and the creativity that can happen in the realm of money and work from some of the other habits that hopefully we'll be able to recognize. And uh, within two hours, your life will turn around and there will be no more stress around money. So... Um, I've never really uh, spoken much about money, and I've never taught a workshop or facilitated something like this on this topic. Um, but I'm only doing it because I need to do it, because I also have stress around money and strange fantasies around money, and uh, maybe as the evening goes on, if uh, I feel trust, I'll share some of my own fantasies about money. Um, so... Uh, we'll be here for two hours, and uh, hopefully something will happen. Uh, does everybody have a handout? Yeah? You don't have a handout? No. Well, I only made 40. Okay. But we didn't have that much money. So <laughs> we're on a budget. So you might have to, you might have to uh, share with somebody. Uh, but um, tomorrow we're going to put it on Facebook or somewhere. So that you can you can uh, get it, and if people are watching on live stream, will they have access through your website? They will after. Yeah, great. Okay. So, um, we need to make a living. Uh, we swim in a world of money, and there are some things that are just 
real physical realities, like a floor or grass or trees, where when we encounter them, we don't have uh, such a charge around them. Uh, trees and rocks and grass, unless you've had some kind of trauma related to trees or grass or rocks, when you encounter those things, usually they don't trigger much for you. Um, but that's not true with money. Money is not so much a physical reality, uh, which is what I hope to explore tonight, but it's also a psychical reality. I don't know if there's such a word. But what I mean by a psychic reality is that it has a psychological image-based, sensation-based response that happens before you even know it. And uh, because money is a psychic reality, we're always going to have lots of divisions in ourselves around money. And the same is true for anything that is a psychic reality. And I would include in that uh, love and politics, uh, death and sexuality, uh, politics and religion. These are just ideas where if you bring them up at a dinner party, there will be a charge. Uh, Rob Ford uh, also is one of these. Um, and when you have something that has a psychological charge, usually it has a kind of archetypal energy. And around it, people usually get split. They think of that thing as either more spiritual or more material. And you can really see this with money, right? But you can see this with all kinds of things, like religion or sex or death. Um, since money is a psychic reality, it's always going to be inherently problematic because uh, psychic realities are always complicated. Uh, therefore, my theory for the evening is that money problems are inevitable. They're necessary. They're always present. And they're always overwhelming. And this is a good sign. Uh, this means that we're in the realm of money. Uh, so money is divine, and money is also the devil. And this is true whether it comes to us as an inheritance, uh, or the energy of money comes to us in a fight, or in a fantasy about a new car, or an old house, or a battle in your relationship around spending, or getting ripped off, or trying to evade taxes, or being speculative, or fears of going broke, bitcoins, poverty, and charity. If you explore any of these topics with your body, you'll feel all kinds of uh, infighting happening. And my suggestion is that means you're in the realm of money. Sometimes money appears in dreams, uh, sometimes it only appears in your living room or in your bedroom or public policy. And wherever we see money appearing, it's going to have this charge. So it's a, a psychic reality. And at the same time, 
money is also a fact, uh, like the ocean is a fact. And so it's always moving, and you can't pin it down. And my interest is how we can have a relationship with a money that is always moving, that you can't pin down. So this might be different than the kind of self-help version of working with money that maybe you came here for, which is I'm going to figure out what money is and I'm going to walk out and I'm going to be able to have more of it or I'm going to give it all to center of gravity. (laughs) I actually thought today when I was making some notes for speaking tonight that instead of calling it money, we should pluralize it and call it monies so that it's more accurate because money is not one thing. So all day today, and I was driving my wife Karina crazy today, because every time we, she said money, I just pluralized it. <laughs> I said, do we have enough monies for that? And we need some monies to go to the store and so on. And it just kind of opens up the imagination in, in interesting ways. You can come in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she's not sure. She heard what the topic was, and now she's sitting at the threshold. <laughs> So before we delve into money, uh, personally, I also just wanted to mention a few things about the society that we're living in, because we're probably living in the most uh, commodified culture ever in human history. Uh, Everything seems to be commodified, and there used to be an old saying, which is, there are some things money can't buy. But I don't know if this is really true anymore. So, for example, if you get arrested in Santa Ana, California, for $80, you can have a prison cell upgrade. So you don't have to be with other prisoners, and you have a nicer bed. You can Google the pictures of it, and it's only $80 a night. So it's not like that's astronomical for many people. If you're a good drug dealer and you get arrested in Santa Ana, you can afford uh, for this prison upgrade. If you live in Wisconsin, you can, for $8, buy access to the taxi and bus lane in rush hour traffic. So if you are solo in a car, and you're sitting in rush hour, and there's no one driving in the bus lane, the carpool lane, for $8, Uh, you can go in and drive in the carpool lane. This is amazing, I think. (laughs) If you need a surrogate mother, uh, you can get a surrogate mother from India for a quarter of the price of a surrogate mother in North America, which is $8,000 a year. So if you need a surrogate mother, $8,000 will buy you a surrogate mother. So think about some of these things. Um, The most endangered species on Earth right now is the black rhino. If you're a hunter and you want to uh, shoot a black rhino for $250,000, you can go to South Africa and there are farmers who are um, uh, growing black rhinos just for hunters so you can go to their farm and shoot one and take one home. A quarter of a million dollars. Um, (laughs) Another example, your doctor. Uh, In the United States now, for an annual fee of $1,500, you can have access to your doctor's cell phone number. 
Isn't this amazing? So if you need to access your doctor, ask them a question for $1,500 a year, you can have their cell phone number, as long as you pay the annual, the annual fee. Um, a couple more I want to describe. The European Union, some of you may have read in The Guardian, uh, just started a carbon dioxide emissions market, which basically is a company's right to be able to pollute. So for $10.50, you can emit one metric ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And the last example is um, in the United States now, for $500,000, you can have a green card. So if you are going to invest $500,000 and create up to 10 jobs, then you can buy citizenship uh, in the United States. So I was trying to think of things that money can't buy, but it's actually becoming harder and harder. And if you can't afford any of those things, there's some really interesting ways you can make money nowadays. Um, there's a pharmaceutical company online that's offering for you to be a human guinea pig in a drug safety test for $7,500. They'll pay you $7,500 for this. Um, there's another company that works with lobby groups. When there are congressional hearings in Washington, D.C., lobby groups have to line up to get people into the hearing, and they'll pay you $20 an hour to line up overnight. Turns out that they just hire homeless people to just stay in the lineup overnight to hold a spot, and then they come in and replace them uh, in the morning. Uh, you can fight in Afghanistan uh, for a private military contractor for $1,000 a day. So if you need some cash, you could go away for a few weeks, 1000 bucks a day. Um, here's the last one. If, I, if none of these have disturbed you so far, this one is really good. Uh, if you're a second grader in an underachieving school in Dallas, Texas, then you can uh, read a book and be paid $2. So this is incentives for kids uh, in second grade uh, to read books. Every time you read a book, uh, you get 2 bucks. I give these examples because we live in a time where almost everything can be bought and sold. Everything. Um, probably over the last 30 years, we've seen this more than at any other time. And when we start thinking about money, uh, you can't separate our thinking about money in our personal life for the way our culture has commodified pretty much everything, including the Great Lakes, where we're living. So when we have anxiety about money and work, uh, we're told that our anxieties can only be relieved in two ways. Uh, one is you gain access to more money, you adjust your debt, you cut your costs. I think we all learn this from our parents, probably. And the second thing you can do is you can go with a lot less. And many of you here do that. Just live more frugally. But I think those two stories about money really don't get into the mess we have around money, which is stress and worry 
and anxiety. Because stress and worry and anxiety are mental states. And those mental states need to be examined. So in the Buddhist tradition, for those of you who are meditators, one of the terms that they have in meditation lingo that we don't really have in English is called papancha. We should actually say it out loud. Papancha. It's very punchy. And in English, papancha means conceptual proliferation. So what it means is something arises, you have a reaction to it, and in your reaction to it, you create a concept about it. And then unconsciously, that concept is then proliferated via memory with many other concepts. Can you picture this? Right? You hear a horn outside, alarm from a car, don't own a car, wish I had a car, I can't afford a car, I'm a yoga teacher, wish I could, I shouldn't be a yoga, well, yeah, I like being a yoga, I quit my job to be a yoga teacher, and I can't afford a car, maybe I should just find a husband. <laughs> So if you break down how we get triggered, then um, there are really three realms we need to look at. And I've made some notes here with some of this on, on there. The first is our patterns of reactivity. And in meditative psychology, there are two patterns we have that we kind of revert to in terms of reactivity. One is called attachment, and the definition of attachment is the desire to repeat pleasurable experience. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You have a little bit of chocolate, what happens? You want more, right? And this is just biological. And the other form of um, reactivity is aversion which is when you experience something unpleasant, you want to get away from it. So the first thing we need to recognize when we're triggered by money is which one of these is showing up. Attachment, which is wanting, or aversion, which is trying to lean away from an experience. The second thing that we need to look at when we're triggered uh, by money, is the internal narrative that we have going. So what's the story that's been triggered in the moment by this particular situation? And we're going to get into some of the situations. And the third is how a deep schema of values that we've internalized from the culture is being played out uh, through us. And this one's really, really important because this is the place I think self-help books around money, because I've been looking at them, are not that helpful. Is that sometimes they don't give enough weight to the pressure of cultural ideas around money that we've internalized. For example, in the newspaper, when you read it, you can't help but feeling that you need more money. Especially at this time of year when newspapers are always selling RRSPs to us. Right? It's RRSP season. 
And so maybe we think that deep down we should uh, marry somebody who's rich or get some property somehow or get a better paying job or just work harder. And we don't even see that this, this happens so quickly. So when we have the feeling that we need more money, uh, we need to put that issue aside because that's not really the issue. There's something deeper going on than just I need more money. And what I want to suggest is that there's two things we need to explore. One is how much money do I need? And two, what do I need it for? And so I've been experimenting with this all week. Whenever I've been triggered around anything around money, even reading a newspaper article, I ask, how much do I need? And you actually like, try to come up with a figure. And then what do I need it for? We're going to do this in a minute. Um, otherwise, if you don't ask that second question, what do I need the money for? Then it's hard to see the internal story that's being played out. And I want to suggest that for all of us, whether you know it or not, there's a cultural story around money that's always being played out. And the cultural story has a spectrum. So one side of the spectrum is the Karl Marx side, which is that money is part of a system that's deeply unjust. And it damages people who succeed and it also damages people who are poor. And the only escape from this problem is overhauling the whole system and getting off of the conveyor belt. And that's, for those of you uh, who might know or might not know, that's the Dalai Lama's position. The Dalai Lama is a Marxist and feels really strongly that the entire way we think about money causes suffering for the people at the top and causes suffering for the people at the bottom. The people at the top, the Dalai Lama feels, um, become paranoid um, and isolated. And the people at the bottom, same thing. Then the other end of the spectrum is the Chicago School of Economics. So the Chicago School of Economics argues for the free market. For them, money should move freely. Money is completely neutral and it's harmless. The only problem with money is your relationship to money. But money itself is just neutral. And if everyone just focuses on their self-interest, then all the money will trickle down through the economy by what Adam Smith called the invisible hand of the economy. So if you have these two schemas, which I am going to argue we all have inside of us, then they meet our internal schema. And uh, over the past few weeks, talking to people a lot, uh, I've heard a few interesting stories about money, and I've tried to make a list of what they boil down to. The first, which is the most common, is that money proves that you're good. The second is that money 
means you're acceptable. Uh, I've been in Europe uh, this for the past few weeks, and so when I was there, I was testing these questions out on people all the time. And when I was in England, this was the most popular story that I heard, is money meaning you're acceptable. Uh, money will improve your relationships. This is true for me. Like, for example, um, if somebody asked me, if you had a little bit more money, what would you do with it? Well, the first thing I would do is have more child care. Because if I had more child care, then I would have more time with Karina. Right? So, But at the same time, if I just focus on, well, Karina and I don't have enough time together, oh, well, the problem is money. If we just had more money then we would have more childcare. But you can see how that is like a slippery slope that actually doesn't really address the issue. Uh, another story about money is it makes sex easier and better. Uh, you think this is funny, but actually, I've been listening to Kanye West. <laughs> okay, If you listen to Kanye West, then if you have more money you have more sex. I'm sure he's not the only person with these values. Uh, but if you talk to people who have trouble in their sex life, often it's because they don't have a lot of time with their partner. Or they need more time with their partner. And so if we had more time, or if we had more money, then we could have more time and be on nice vacations that are more erotic or whatever. Um... Money is the cause of evil. Money creates greed. Money is the path to love. Money is poison. And this last one was my favorite. Money kills childhood. <laughs> so we tend to tell ourselves a lot of lies about money. And then there's a whole other category of people who say... I have no right to think about money. Just thinking about money is a luxury that only people with money problems can afford to have. In other words, who am I to even speak about money or come to a workshop like this? And then they clothe that conversation that seems political um, in a way that has to do with privilege. But actually, to my ear, that conversation also has in it a lot of self-criticism and a lot of judgment. So we need to really strip some of the layers of cloudiness we have around money. And I thought we could start just with a couple experiments. So the first thing is, on your phone or on a piece of paper... I want you to write, and I'll just tell you the exercise, is I want you to write five words or terms or images that come to mind when I say the word money. So I, I did this today. So I'm just going to read you mine so you have an idea. So this is without thinking. First things that come to your mind. So mine were winter tires, my grandmother's front door, more child care, Keying cars, motorcycle insurance. Okay? So you write down now 
five things that come up for you around money. Try and stick with an image if possible. Five. Yeah. So you don't need a sentence. And for people who are on the live stream, uh, you can do this exercise also, which is five images that come up when I say the word money. No editing. Okay, everybody should have five by now. So, can a few people read out their five? Yeah, So, and speak nice and loud. Will, will the mic pick it up or should I, I um, repeat it? Okay, so I'll, I'll repeat it, yeah. Oh, just, do you want me to go one by one? Yeah. Just, okay. um, travel. Travel. Vacation. Vacation. Clothes. Leslieville. Leslieville. Time. Time. <clears throat> Somebody else. Lori. Power. Power. Freedom. Freedom. Choice. Choice. Family. Family. House. House. Great. Somebody else. Doug. Less boredom. Less boredom. Greater freedom to choose. Greater freedom to choose. Power at work. Power and work. <laughs> Approval yeah. by others. Approval by others. Yeah. Work. Work. Light. Light. Freedom. Freedom. Creativity. Creativity. House. House. Yeah. yeah. House. House. Car. Oh, house is coming up a lot. Car. Vacation. Vacation. Cook. Cook. Made. Made. <laughs> John? Insufficient, inadequate, trip to India, niece's education, security. Yeah. Home improvement completed, trips, trips, like out west from New York City. Health, health testing and vitamins, donation to causes, and attending workshops. <laughs> okay. One more. One more. This is great. Aaron. Ecological devastation. Ecological devastation. Family. Family. Grown up. Grown up. Reverse magnetism. Reverse magnetism. Ability to be generous. Ability to be generous. Okay. Um, let's try the exercise one more time. This time, five particular images. Specific images, so not abstract things, but particular images that come up around money. Start now. Oh, yeah. We, today I did this about ten times. Yeah. The more you do it, the more interesting it gets. So five particular images that come up when you hear the word money. 
And it's also really interesting to notice if you don't want to write anything down. So just check that out and try to keep writing or typing, whatever you're, you're doing. And now I want you to turn to somebody next to you and I want you to explain the first two images to them. So explain what you mean by the first two images. What does this have to do with money? Explain what you mean. Thank your partner. So, wow, there's a lot to say. So I'm interested, uh, 
So I'm interested when you when you choose an image. When you choose an image, um, all the different stories that come up around it. Um, so would anybody like to share a couple of these? What gets triggered around, like what the image was, and then what you associated to it? Yes. I saw myself like public speaking, uh-huh. and I think for that, it, money for me is equals uh, just the opportunity to build the business that I. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> Somebody else. Yes. Um, so this is kind of in the framework of service to others. Not um, money is, is uh, prevents me from um, continuing to work further towards the, the good that I. What was the image? Uh, oh, um, so the ability to continue to work further towards good and like. But that's not an image. Pick one that's an image. Well, I see myself. Doing that work at the end. Of but what's the image? The thing. Uh, helping other people. But what's the image? <laughs> what do we see you doing? Yeah, what do we see? Like if we saw a picture of you. Uh, doing work. Of what is it? Yeah. What are you wearing? <laughs> clothes. Okay. Yeah. So that's the image. Okay. What kind of clothes? Um, these. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what do the, what do those clothes mean? That's what I mean. So somebody else, just with an image and expanding the image, yeah. So I'm in a meditation hut at Gampo Abbey on, in Nova Scotia, and I'm just mm-hmm. going to be there for two or three months and not worry about mortgage or clothes or all of that. Uh-huh. So you have clothes, you have no clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else has a house, you have a hut. <laughs> kind of clinic? Um, it's like a body work psychotherapy clinic. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Do you need money to have the clinic or is the clinic the place where you make the money? Um, it's both. Oh. So I need money to get the business started. Uh-huh. Great. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you some questions and I want you to respond on your piece of paper and you don't have to share this with anybody. And it's kind of like keying your bank code in, you know, don't let anybody see what you're writing. Um, And also, for people who are doing this via live stream, I hope you also will write down honest answers to these questions. So, the first is, are you proud of yourself in relationship to money? Yes or no? Are you proud of yourself? in relationship to money. Number two, should your work pay you a certain amount of money? How much? What's the number? So there's two questions. Should your work pay you a certain amount? Yes or no? If yes, how much? Just write down the number.
Next. When were you most humiliated with money? When were you most humiliated with money? You don't have to make a story. Just write down, like, you know, one word or one sentence so that you know what you're, what you're thinking about. When were you most humiliated with money? Next. At the time you were most humiliated with money, how did you feel about people around you? Is there one repetitive way that money has figured in your relationships? Is there one repetitive way that money has figured in your relationships? Don't edit. (laughs) Some of you I can see you thinking. Don't think about it. Oh, how about with people? You, you decide. Yeah. If you can't think of one person, just think about, you know, uh, lovers. Can we keep going? Yep. Um, Did your upbringing encourage a healthy relationship with money? Did your upbringing encourage a healthy relationship with money? And now, the next one... Um, I actually think is the most important. To what extent do you attribute magical powers to money? Sure, a percentage is fine. To what extent, or what percent, do you attribute magical powers to money? Is there some part of getting money or losing money or hiding money or not looking at money where um, money does something magical that is outside of your power? Can we keep going? Do you pay more attention to how much money people seem to have 
rather than the delicate question of how much they actually have. So when you're in relationship with people, do you pay more attention to how much they seem to have rather than what they might actually have? An example would be, you know, you get to know someone and you find out how much money they actually have and you're really surprised because of your own fantasy. And that happens often. Or not. And usually do you imagine that people have more or less? The question was to imagine that they often have more or less. Mm -hmm. It's trying, the purpose of the question is trying to get a sense of like your projection and also not only whether there's a lot of projection all the time, but does it usually fall into one category? Like I always think people have way more money than they actually have, or usually I'm surprised because they often have way less than I thought they would have. And now the last question is um, three fears that you have around money. Real fears. Three fears around money. And you should also notice uh, at this point how you are in your body. Are you relaxed? What's your tongue doing? How's your breathing? (coughs) Your temperature? As you could probably imagine, uh, we could unpack this for a whole day. Um, Okay. Is there anything anybody wants to say uh, so far about these questions before uh, I make some suggestions around working with them? Okay. So, um, money works in a cycle like everything else. And in an ideal cycle, your work and your labor and your creativity and your life energy uh, brings in money. That's the money cycle. Your work, your energy, your life all move together and, and, and there's money involved in it then that money that you make gets translated into experiences and possessions that have a personal value and a social value. And those possessions should last a long time. 
Experiences should last a long time. Possessions should last a long, a long time. Uh, the point is that the money that's made has personal value, a social value, and also has some longevity. And I'm going to talk about more of the, the ethic around longevity. The point of thinking about money in this cycle is, and, and I wrote the cycle out, I think, on your, on your page somewhere, is that when you stop seeing money as part of that cycle of translating your effort into experiences or possessions, then money becomes extremely problematic. So an example is real estate. Uh, when you live in a house, is it a home or is it money? Oh, this is very common. So I just uh, visited this year, I visited some friends in France and uh, I said, oh, this is a great house. They said, oh, we inherited this house. And I said, oh, you're so lucky that you inherited this house and that your mom didn't sell the house. And they said, oh, that's such an American thing to say. Because in this village in France, you would never sell your house. It's not even something that's in the culture of the elderly. It's just you take your house, you take care of it, so that it goes to the next person. So the real question is, you know, in our fantasies around money, is money is a means to what? And now we're getting in a little bit to kind of the ethics, our ethics around money. I came across a very interesting uh, study uh, recently around uh, money and <coughs> ethics and psychotherapy. So it was a, there was a study done on taboos in psychotherapeutic relationships. And therapists were surveyed regarding what they felt they must never do with the patient. And they had a list. All the things you shouldn't do with a patient and a scale. And it was discovered that touching and holding, shouting and hitting, drinking and kissing, and nudity and intercourse were all less prohibited than lending money <laughs> to a patient. <laughs> Uh, the Buddha had a lot to say about money. When he created his community, the first thing he did was he set up a system of alms so that monks and nuns had to uh, go into cities to beg for their food, and um, this was how they were supported. And the Buddha called this a middle path because he was very critical of people who dropped out of society. And this made his community rely on society. And if you go to India in the pilgrimage circuit of all the places the Buddha taught, all the places he taught were right outside of major cities because the community always relied on people in the cities to help support them so that they weren't completely, uh, uh, they weren't dropouts. 
Um, the Buddha thought that money helped people support the material responsibility of family. And uh, here is his suggestions uh, for uh, using your money. One is a quarter percent of your income should be used for consumption. Food, experiences, possessions you need to buy. A quarter of your income should be saved for emergency. And 50% of your income should be reinvested in your education, your practice, and your business. So uh, I'm not a businessman. Uh, Doug is the <coughs> resident businessman. But from what I know about business, 50% is a very high rate of reinvestment. Extraordinary for a business. Is, is that right? It's unheard of. Unheard of. Okay. Yeah. So that's a lot of patents. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just think about that in terms of your own life. So income comes in, 25% is used for consumption. So that's everything, your food, your rent. Imagine this in the city of Toronto. Uh, 25% of your income is uh, saved for an emergency. And 50% is reinvested in your own education, in your practice, and if you have a business, in your business. I think this is a really beautiful model. Imagine people who had businesses who were taking 50% of their revenue and putting it back into their business rather than trying to extract every last drop <laughs> for themselves. So let's go through that one more time. 25% for consumption. 25% saving for an emergency, and 50% uh, reinvestment, conferences, retreats, people, the environment. What, what else? What, what's, what else would you put in the 50% category? We all know it goes in the consumption category. <laughs> Training for employees. And Training for employees. Yeah. Psychotherapy. <laughs> Thank you from the psychotherapist. <laughs> Maternity leave. Materials. Getting a new space. Materials. Materials. Getting a new space. Like what would be getting a new space? Like a store, right? Like taking a risk. Expanding. Taking a risk. Expanding. Alternative healthcare. Available. Alternative healthcare. Graduate school. A gym membership. A gym membership. Catering. Free food so if the, what would the gym spend their 50% on? Better equipment. Better equipment. Yoga blocks. Yoga blocks. <laughs> yeah. Is anybody here a business person that thinks this is insane? Or is this actually something that's possible? This is pretty much what, where I'm at. It's where you're at? Yeah. How so? Well, I, have a, I, I run a small business and just like I... It's stuff that I make myself, and so I'm always just buying more supply. Like, I just, 
in order to take make money, you have to spend money kind of thing. And so I just, I'm not super, I never feel bad about spending money on things that are investing and making the thing better. Yeah, you know? yeah. But it's hard in Toronto. Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> Uh, this might be surprising because I think a lot of people don't know much about what the Buddha said about money. But he said a lot of really interesting things about money. And what I like about this formula is that the Buddha sets up an ethic that's not antagonistic towards the development of material prosperity. He really felt that in order to practice, in order to give uh, creatively to your family and society, you needed leisure time. And that poverty was bad because poverty eliminated leisure time. And he's talking at this age of the poverty that comes in cities uh, from people who just can't afford um, to live. The Buddha also thought that when you made your money, it shouldn't come in contact with arms. So if you make money, and if you save money, in the cycle of money, your money should never come in contact with the military. Now, I don't know if that's possible. Is it possible in this age when our money flows through global systems to be able to put money in the bank and say it doesn't come into contact with the military? I don't know. Uh, but, but this is an interesting kind of uh, value that the Buddha puts on, on, on money. How many of you here are in a relationship where uh, you have financial uh, uh, sharing with a partner, where you, maybe you have a, a bank account together or one of you, uh, or you live together. Um, how many of you have this? In, in the, yeah. um, so it seems like in relationship, one person is always good at making money and one person is good at flourishing. It's not always true, but it tends to be that one person is a little better at the money making and one person is a little better at living. <laughs> yeah. It's not always like this. And over time, depending on your life circumstances, that balance might change also. So uh, the next set of things I want you to think about are also really interesting to think about as a couple. And I've been testing this out in my own life. Um, it has to do with your needs. Do you need a sports car? Do you need a boat? Do you need an apartment? Do you need a new bicycle? Do you need a warm holiday every winter? Um, I always tell myself, I need a warm holiday every winter. And if I can't do it, it's such a catastrophe. Um, 
How do you sort out your needs and your cravings? So in uh, Buddhist practice, we make a distinction between desire and craving. That they're not the same thing. So like this is desire and this is craving. So thirsty, desire for water. I want the water to be a certain way. But um, when we desire something and then there's attachment in it, we get craving, you see. So desire is considered healthy and craving is considered unhealthy. So I came up with these two questions <coughs> to help people think about the difference between desire and craving without using that terminology. And these are the two questions. When you really, really want something. So just picture what that is right now. The first question is, and I've written this down for you, how central is this want to becoming a good version of myself? Is everybody working through one right now? Pick another thing you really want. Everybody have the image? How central is this to becoming a good version of myself? This is what you're going to put on your fridge. Or maybe you don't have a fridge. And you really <laughs> want a fridge. Number two, what is this actually for in my life? So pick that first thing again and ask yourself, what is this actually for in my life? <clears throat> And then do that with the second thing. What is this actually for in my life? So uh, these two questions, uh, my partner Karina and I have been working on a lot. We've been using this a lot. And whenever there's something we really want, these are the two questions we asked. How does this thing help us become better versions of ourselves? And is that really true? And it's cool when you do this with someone else because you can see right away if you're just making it up. And the second thing is, what is this actually for in our life? What do we do with this? And it eliminates a lot very quickly when you ask these questions. <coughs> so needs are what you have to get in order to survive. Uh, cravings go in all kinds of directions. And then sometimes there's a gray area. So, for example, my brother is a banjo player. And in order to get the sound he likes to have when he plays banjo, he needs old banjos. And old banjos are very, very expensive. But for him, it's an absolute need, and it's not negotiable. Uh, but he can't afford it. So then I was with him and his wife, and she was a little upset because he was saying, I need this banjo from 1926. And she was saying, well, he can't afford it. And so they both looked at me, like, what should we do? 
And I said, oh, well, you should invest 50% of your money back into your business. <laughs> the point is, is that a message we don't really get in our society, and that's really important, is that, and what these questions are getting at, is that the things we spend our money on should help us flourish and should help people around us flourish. And lastly, the things that we buy should last a long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about plastic. Mm. Um, So the last series of questions that I want to explore, which I've also written down for you, uh, come from uh, one of my teachers, a wonderful uh, guy named Peter Levitt. And Peter has this motto that he uses a lot, um, which is like his motto for life, which is um, be happy, be helpful, be modest, be kind. He applies that to everything. Be happy, be helpful, be modest, be kind. So I was trying to translate that into some questions that we can apply Uh, in terms of money. So here are the hardest questions of the night. But these are the ones that I think are the most important. Think about something you really, 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 really want. Has everybody got it? Think about something you really, 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 really want. So here are some questions to apply to that. One, where will this thing go in my life? Where is it going to (coughs) go? Number two, how big a role should this play in my life? and in my community. Because maybe there's this thing you really, really want, you can see exactly where it's going to go, but it plays such an enormous role. Like, have you ever heard of this thing called maintenance? No. Well, when you buy something, you have to maintain it. People get excited about buying a cottage or something, but they don't think about maintenance. And I don't just mean the cost of maintenance, but actually the time and energy of maintenance. Number three, how central is this thing in a flourishing life? Are you getting some clarity? Number four, how does this thing support friendship care for the earth, modesty, and helpfulness. And my suggestion to you is you can't really address money issues 
without really looking closely at those questions. Especially the first two. Where is this object going to go in my life? And also, how big of a role should this play in my life and in the lives of people around me? And different societies and different religions, of course, uh, also play into the ethics uh, or these schemas in us. I grew up with this funny joke where there is a a Christian priest... There is a Buddhist monk, and uh, there's a Jewish rabbi. And they're all talking together about what their congregations do with money. And so the Buddhist says, well, when we have money in our congregation, we take a big circle, we we draw a big circle on the ground, we stand in the middle, and we throw all the money into the air, and whatever lands outside of the circle, we give it away. And whatever lands inside the circle, we keep it. And then uh, the Christian priest says, oh, we do something very similar to that. We draw a big circle on the ground. And whatever money, after we throw it up, lands inside the circle, that's what we give away. And if it lands outside the circle, that's what we keep. And then the Jew said, well, we take all the money and we throw it up in the air. And whatever God wants, he keeps (laughs) so i forgot about this joke but then when i started thinking preparing for this i was like well what story did i grow up with around money (laughs) that was the first one that came to mind so um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a, a break just for five minutes and we can get up and stretch and then uh, we're going to come back and look a little more closely at some of these questions.